I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is Regressives, a limited series and show from the lost debate that takes a lens on progressive thinking and ideas to say, hey, within this tent, are there any things we could be doing differently or better? And today's episode is a really important one. We're speaking with Connor Doherty. He's an economics reporter at the New York Times and an author of the book, Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream. I love this book. He takes a look at the Bay Area and says, hey, why don't we have more housing density in this city and in other American cities around the country? This is about so much more than any one area. And what he does is challenge progressives to think more about increasing housing stock, increasing the supply of housing so that we could drive down the prices, especially for the most vulnerable. Connor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, Connor, before we started taping, you were saying to me that you think that housing may be the area where progressives, where there's a bigger gap between progressive self-perception and their actual actions. And so why don't we start there? Why is that the case? I think that's the case because housing cuts to so many different aspects of our life, our society, our civilization, that it's very, very hard to reduced to partisan terms. If you go to a very red suburb, uh, you know, in let's say Texas or Florida or something, you will find all sorts of people who, you know, will profess to want the government out of their lives and think property rights are sacrosanct. And yet if someone were to sort of say, well, then fine, your neighbor can build something a little larger, uh, you know, an apartment complex or affordable housing or something like that near you, they will react with fury and their solution will be to legislate a million little rules that go against all of those values I just kind of laid out. And that's that, right? You know, the, the arm of the government is, is only a problem when it's not their block. Progressives are the same way. They will profess to be very concerned about climate change, um, to be very worried about sprawl, to be very worried about income inequality and wealth inequality, and to be in favor of affordable housing. But when you try and say, build affordable housing near them or deregulate housing laws so that people could build higher density and presumably more affordable housing near them, or you try and make it more difficult for people to build sprawl, all of those same values go out the door. And and I think that that's where housing kind of becomes this place where ideology breaks down. And I think that has less to do with rank hypocrisy, though of course it manifests that way, than it does this sort of tricky position land occupies in the economy, in our emotions versus, you know, our um, kind of business, you know. Land is this odd thing. It's people talk about land as a free market and capitalism and whatever. But of course, the only value land has is through some sort of public sphere, whether it's infrastructure improvements that can only be funded over a large kind of society-wide, uh, you know, can, can only be funded large with, with, with whole society pitching in, or they want to be near kind of a public square or, you know, or some people, people generally want to be near what are effectively public resources. And that typically imparts the most value on real estate. You know, beaches, downtown, like schools being yeah, exactly. One. Yeah, they always schools, want to be yeah. near things that are collectively funded, and so we sort of have this odd thing where we talk about this free market, but that market is only free within the bounds of 
all the value that is created by this public sphere. And I, I think that's true of the economy more broadly. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. You know, I mean, certainly it's true that we see this in, I don't know, technology. Like we know that government funding, uh, iPhone would not be possible without the government funding and Google would not be, the internet wouldn't exist, you know, all these things, right? But I think housing is the place where you see it, where it's so stark because, you know, roads and schools and all these things that are public resources are the things that everybody wants to be near. So people kind of just shift to reptile brain when they're talking about their housing and their kids. And it doesn't necessarily matter if they're progressive or, con or, or consider themselves progressive or conservative. It's that these kind of much more emotional, visceral issues start to dictate how they think about it. And that's, why, that's one reason why I love local politics. It's where people truly express what they mean, whether they're progressive or conservative. <laughs> yeah, and I see this... You know, I'm a former school principal, and the link between housing and schools is obviously so strong. And this is where I think affluent progressives and suburban conservatives have so much in common and don't realize it, which is like the suburban conservatives, they, like you talked about, they're, they're almost brazenly defensive of the tie between the quality of a school and the real estate uh, value. Like they... I find that they don't even pretend to to have any other interest other than their self-interest uh, for their kids, and they don't even pretend to play any other game there. Whereas I think progressives will say they want equity within the school system, um, they want every kid to go to a great school, but they hold up this concept of the neighborhood school like it's like this pleasant Velesque type of opportunity for everybody where what affluent progressives are playing the same game that the, the suburban conservatives are. They're moving to the right neighborhood. They are as defensive as of those neighborhood school boundaries as anybody else. Um, and what that means is they're excluding a lot of people who can't afford to live in that neighborhood from going to that school. And so this is where I think housing is, is such a key here. Uh, I think housing is the key to kind of a lot of things. You know, I guess part of my thesis uh, for all of the work I do, whether at the New York Times or in my book, is that it sits at the center of all these problems. Uh, we can't, there's no way to tame climate change unless we significantly reduce vehicle miles traveled, which is, you know, how far people drive. And you can't Tesla your way out of that one. You know, you got to actually find a way right. to reduce the number of trips. And people, people, you tell someone that broadly and they say, oh, I'm totally on board with that. You tell them, okay, and that means someone's going to build a triplex near you, and they're that they're no longer on board with that. And so, can we pause there for a second and define two terms that you've used earlier, just for the sake of this conversation, which are sprawl and density? So, do you mind just defining those terms and and talking about before we move on, just why those are really important terms here uh, in this debate? Exactly. And you know what? Um, kind of like I said before, these terms are not really definable. They get very emotional, right? So. When we say density, we mean typically a lot of people living per acre. Uh, you know, so that's usually an apartment building or a, a row of row houses. 
right? Uh, so that's that we think of a, a, a compact urban environment as dense. When we think of sprawl, we think of, you know, the typical cul-de-sac cookie cutter kind of subdivision on the fringes of, of a metro area. Now, sprawl yeah. is the, I should say, if you ask people in surveys where they live, almost nobody thinks they live in sprawl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, though, what if you think about how we've developed as a country, we have essentially found more and more ways to get people further and further from cities. You know, we started with trains and then buses and then ultimately highways. And, you know, those different modes of transportation have made it easier and easier and easier for people to live further and further from a center. I think that so far that seems to have run out. I'm not going to be crazy enough to say that we will never find another technology that will get us further, possibly self-driving cars. Although, or, of course, COVID was a technology of a sort that kind yes, of accelerated totally. this. And, yeah. and we can talk about that. It does not. It has not had any effect, uh, obvious effect, on really? urban home prices yet. Right. I mean, huh. what what has happened to home prices over COVID? What has happened yeah. to California's home prices? It went from, you know, like about a six hundred thousand median to like an eight hundred thousand median. So. Why? Why is that the case? Because, like, anecdotally, you and I probably are similar in that we know people who are moving to, you know, Idaho or Montana mm -hmm. or Woodstock or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I guess for every one of those, there are other people who've just decided to double down. Uh, well, also, city. just hold that thought for a second. What place has had the highest increase uh, in home prices um, over this period? And what place is struggling with homeless problem that they that is starting to spiral out of control? And I'm gonna has, guess it's the same place. <laughs> and, and, and has huge resentment about people moving there. Welcome to Boise, Idaho. The median home price in Ada County was $133,000 10 years ago. 10 years later, it has gone up 241% to just over a half million dollars. That's according to the Boise Regional Realtors Association. Right? Really? So, oh, I was going to guess somewhere else. Okay. I guess yeah. what I'm saying is, is that this is not only a California problem. Now, California is, you know, the ugliest at the ugly dance, but, um, <laughs> but it's not, uh, you know, if you go find a place where people want to be and that is sort of succeeding economically, you will find a place that has a housing problem. And Boise, Idaho is is struggling mightily with it. So, uh, you know, if you go to Boise, there's like, go back to California, spray painted on the side of the highways. Uh, if you look at Redfin, which is, you know, the national real estate brokerage, they have all these surveys that show that people who move to Boise typically have a buying budget that's like almost $200,000 more than the people who are looking in the local market. So, this is not only a problem in the in the San Francisco's and the Seattle's. Like I said, it is most acute there, but the same problems and ultimately in the same divisions we're talking about and the same sort of hypocrisies start to pop up. So let's let's talk about why we're here. Yeah. So uh, to summarize where we are, and I'm going to simplify this discussion, but I know it's more complicated than this. Yeah. Density. It helps us solve certain problems. It's not an unabashed only positive, but it, it helps us decrease the prices of 
housing in urban areas. Uh, we certainly want to put density closer to, to accessible transportation, especially public transportation, because that cuts down on, you know, vehicle emissions, traffic, all sorts of other bad things uh, that can happen in a society. It, it, people probably use less resources. Like, for instance, if I'm in a one-bedroom apartment or a three-bedroom apartment, I'm probably using less resources than if I live in a three-bedroom house, for instance. So we kind of want more density, probably, and we want less sprawl, by and large, just to simplify the discussion. Uh, but we don't have that. Uh, and why Why is that the case? Why don't we have more density as housing prices are increasing across the country right now? Because we don't allow it, pure and simple. Uh, so this is where we get into the wonky area that I will try not to get wonky on. But most of our housing policy, at least in terms of where and how we build, is set by local governments. Biden has been talking lately about a big housing plan. We'll also work to keep a roof over their heads to stem the growing housing crisis and evictions that are looming. But I don't actually believe that he has much power to enact that plan beyond certain funding things, and which are all great, right? But um, or, or, or talking about the right things, you know, how to increase density, how to um, make affordable housing more robustly funded, you know, using rental vouchers. Uh, so ultimately, where that housing gets built, where that shelter in America gets built is more or less dictated by states and even more so local governments. And so when we talk about the Bay Area housing market. We're not talking about San Francisco. We're not even talking about California. We're talking about 100-ish cities who say what can be built where and at what densities, right? And those little rules are extremely powerful in some. Uh, on their own, who cares? Uh, you know, like uh, if you have one exclusive enclave, you know, maybe it offends your sense of justice or something, but it doesn't really matter on a large scale. But when every single place is sort of chasing this very low density car centric environment and trying very hard to preserve it and trying to make it very difficult for anyone to build anything because they're trying to preserve the home values for people who are already there. Yeah. And let's examine that, that assumption for a second. So, so people would be like, why would they do that? Just to state the obvious here, there's a sense and you probably know whether this is true or not. If we add density, that the, the 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 value of everybody else's property around there goes down. That's number one. Number two is that there's a question of infrastructure. So, in the short term, like do schools get crowded, does traffic increase, and then there's you know these are left leaning cities. A lot of them. It's certainly easy to make an environmental argument about building. I don't. Right? I don't. I don't concede that they're left leaning cities. Okay. I All right. Concede, let's do that. <laughs> I concede that they are. I can see that there are people who vote for Democrats for Congress and for president. Um, and I can see that there are people who vote for people who um, are generally members of the Democratic Party in their city councils. But if you ask yourself what makes a city progressive versus, you know, not who they vote for for president, which their little city council has no control over. I just don't see these places as acting in a manner that's progressive. They're certainly not doing anything for the climate. They're not doing anything for schools. They're not increasing the supply of affordable housing or any of these things. In many ways, they're decreasing the supply if you take into account the 
yeah. population growth to some of these places, right? One of the things I think that um, that I think has kind of hijacked this discussion at the local level is people always try to frame this as hypocrisy, as you and I are doing in this conversation. But I kind of have gotten to the point where I feel like that's unhelpful because I'm just like, these are not progressive cities. They're not, yeah. they're not wannabe progressive cities that have, uh, you know, lost their way. They're just not progressive cities. And building a progressive city appears to be something really hard. Yeah, <laughs> because nobody really wants to do it. Well, can I can I tell you a move that I see as somebody who spent a lot of time with politicians? I see this when it comes to schools, and I see it when it comes to housing. They say I'm not against more density. They say, oh, I'm not against like integrating our schools better. I just think the process is flawed. And then they wind up like just mucking up the discussion by saying we need another hearing, we need another process, we need another thing. And in the end, they don't appear to the public to be against these things. Uh, they'll just be like, no, I'm not against it in principle. I just think that this one building is bad or I think that this, the, the voters didn't get enough of a say. They do this with schools. They do this with housing. Um, are you seeing that? I certainly see that in New York, which is like a lot of these people, yeah. like they, they would pass a lie detector test, some of these people to say, like that they're for more density, they're for more integration, but they would do everything possible to stop it. As you, as you sort of pointed out with your... Uh sort of introduction there, which is that sometimes this has to do with the voters as well. We do live in a representative democracy. And when you ask people what they really want, what they want in their neighborhood is oftentimes very different from what they say they want in a president or a member of Congress. And so if you're a city council person and you're sort of trying to ask yourself, what do my constituents really want? That question is just different. People don't want a school that is going to have a lot of poor kids in it. They're okay with enough of them that they can say their school looks like the United Nations, but not so many that it starts to have some of the social problems, you know, because schools end up becoming, between free lunches and other things, schools are, you know, an important provider of social services in this country. And if your school kind of becomes a school like that, I guess you're worried that it will distract you. And and it does require more work on your part, right? You sometimes have to become more involved in the school. You um, might have to spend more time with your kid or you're worried that they're not getting the right instruction during the time that you're not watching them, whatever. You know, th there are you know, real reasons why this is more inconvenient for you. So it's not like this is imaginary. Housing too, right? If there's, a, there's more noise around you, if there's more traffic, if you can't, if the public parking spot outside of your house <laughs> stops uh, seeming like a private parking spot um, <laughs> offends you in, in some way, you know? And so it's not to say that there aren't real inconveniences here, but I guess that's kind of my point, right? So you can vote for a president and have, have some reasonable belief that it's not going to affect you all that much, certainly not in a hugely inconvenient way. But when people want to start changing your neighborhood, that, that might change. On top of that, I think there is something, like I sort of said, visceral about feeling like you have some control over your neighborhood. And this is like a good segue into one of the like tightest knots of housing, which is that when these housing fights break out in the Bay Area and all these other cities, and by the way, I just want to say I'm so fascinated with which housing is that the same patterns play out everywhere. You know, they're all local policies. There's no obvious um, 
connection between them other than the same thing plays out everywhere. Uh, <laughs> so there's something larger at play, even though it's being locally implemented, right? Yes, there's some larger, so, you know, like political or uh, or emotional, motivational, you know, set of incentives that are creating the same policies, even though... Well, people don't like it when things get torn up around them and they don't know what's coming. Some people have a lot of opinions about... Uh, you know, architecture or a particular, but what something near them looks like, or is it ugly or, uh, mm. you know, and, and so I think that there is something deep about wanting to feel like you have control of your surroundings. And that is a very widely held feeling. So to give you an example that I was sort of just thinking about and the real progressive knot, when you start talking about building more housing in cities you will find in almost every city, there is a kind of coalition between the anti-gentrification activists who are worried about um, kind of luxury development in neighborhoods that are kind of clinging to affordability and kind of suburban, uh, wealthier suburban enclaves that are just worried about development in the neighborhood. And they have, they have formed a kind of a spoken coalition in some places or, and, and in other places, kind of an unspoken one, but they, they in California, they rally together against the same bills. They are on calls with each other. You know, this is a, a legitimate coalition. And I guess what I would say is the commonality there is that a lot of regulation gives you a lot of opportunity to exert some amount of control over a developer coming into your neighborhood. Now, what you want to do with that control might be wildly different. In a suburb, you want, might just want to keep everyone out or make sure they only build kind of fancier things. In a more gentrifying neighborhood, you might want to have a lot more input with them about what gets built, the levels of affordability, community benefit, whatever. But the, the sort of ability to stop it through the political process represents kind of control over your surroundings. And I guess the question we're sort of asking when we start talking about all these things is how much control do people deserve? How much control is too much? When is red tape too much? You know, uh, we don't want no control. You get Robert Moses if, uh, mm. if that's where you go. But if you have too much control, you get California. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's and, like who's controlled, though, right? Like you, you've cited it in your book, I think. Uh, you know, there, there are people who are displaced, uh, because of increased cost. And those people deserve a certain semblance of control too, right? And so for, for every ounce of control that we give over the property owner um, to dictate the terms of other people's development, right? Because if you're the property owner, you're not, chances are you're not going to be occupying that new development. It's the, the new people who'd move in your neighborhood or the people who are being priced out of rental properties uh, who, who don't have the control over their destiny and they wind up you know, doubling, tripling up mm -hmm. in housing or having to leave the places where they grew up. Uh, but what you, what you got at there is so interesting to me, which is as a political strategist, there is almost no boogeyman more powerful in, a, in city politics than the developers. Yeah, And so it's so easy just to be like, hey, in New York, we do this all the time. Like so many of the candidates I've coached over the years are just, you know, against Rebney, the real estate board of New York, who has done a lot of bad things, to be clear. Like they're they're like anything else. They're a powerful interest group who need to be uh, 
we need to be skeptical of. But I think what happens is people sound progressive when they're opposing Rebney on certain things and opposing development on certain things because they're going up against the big, powerful interests. And I don't think we're we're training our lens enough on the people who are opposing that development to say, well, you're powerful too. Like, you know, the the brownstone you know, crowd in New York City or the, the anti-gentrification or in New York where we use um, landmark status uh, in New York to prevent development in places like Soho. And, and, you know, we're basically standing on nostalgia to oppose any new density. They're good at this. You know, like my local city council member, my friend, he, he'll, he'll bring in Chinatown activists uh, together with fancy apartment owners in Soho and say, all right, we're going to stop development. You know, and that they're just it's good politics. <laughs> so it's like, how do you stop that? You know, like this is the thing is like one of the things that's challenging is you have progressive people who claim to be progressive politicians, as you pointed out, probably not progressives. Um who are really good at creating a coalition that appears progressive. And then on the other side, you often have the developers and then the people who are being priced out are often not as organized. And that's a challenge. Yes. So as I sort of said it in my book, it's very hard to organize a coalition, basically impossible, of people who don't live somewhere yet. They don't have yeah. a voice. Some of them might not be born. And, and I think the place I've come to and, you know, honestly, it's a struggle for me in my reporting because I'm often accused of being, you know, a shill for developers or whatever, because I'm sort of like, we have a housing shortage. Someone has to fill it. Uh, you know, that's who fills it in America. Like, I, I don't know where to go with that. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah. uh, I mean, some people, that's why some people just default to I'm a FIMBY, which means public housing in my backyard, which is not even a real thing, but people will say that. Right. And, um, <laughs> but I guess the question then is, well, who builds that? Like these for-profit contractors and all, you know what I mean? Like there's this whole- Yeah, the government. I mean, even I mean, affordable it's a whole other podcast is, about the government in places like New York can't build anything anymore. It's funny. People are always talking about um, affordable housing, which is, uh, you know, actually a tax program, federal tax program called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. But affordable housing is typically built by for-profit developers. Even in the case when it's built by non-profit developers, they're using all for-profit contractors to build it. So the developer is just this holding company that makes everybody feel good about the word non-profit. So <laughs> I, 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 you know, and then the examples of public housing so far, now this is, this is where the federal government is to blame, are not good, right? And that's because they funded it and then basically defunded it and cities were left with this you know, massive overhead. Yeah, it's a mess in New York City, for Yes, example. exactly. Yeah. Well, as the New York Times has reported, the biggest slumlord in New York is New York City. So I guess what I'm saying though is that I have as much discomfort as anyone with how developers operate. But typically, they're looking to cut down on process as much as possible. Um, they have a lot of political influence. Um, they spread money around, you know, all the things that, yeah. that, that that we don't like about our politics in local politics, a developer can sometimes exemplify, you know, they're like the big pharma of local politics, right? But I, the way I've sort of reconciled it to myself is these buildings have lives that are, you know, hundreds, uh, tens, sometimes hundreds of years old. Yeah. And they end up being a resource for the community for that life and the developers really only involved in it for about a 1% of that life. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, the thing that I always love is when people say to me, Oh, they hate developers and all this sort of thing. And then you, of course, I've done this several times who went and built your house. Uh, right. <laughs> and you know, and, and yeah. I, I'm actually doing a story right now that is this kind of long narrative tale about a particular house in a particular neighborhood. 
and all these people are complaining. So I happened to go back. I mean, I literally did all this stuff on the actual developer and I got the original plots and all those things. And he's some rich guy who's, you know, I mean, he's dead now, but I mean, he was one of the richest people in the area there. Right. And so right. they're all like talking about how these developers are so bad. And I'm like, and I get that, but I'm just sort of like, you know, the person who built your place was that person, you, you know, and by the way, everyone was complaining about you then. Right. So, yeah. uh, so I think that kind of gets to this place where housing is just very hard. And, and I actually, this is an area where I really understand the hard DSA kind of socialist mindset because this system seems so knotted up and the trade-offs so putrid that you kind of just default to, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be right. in a place where I have to be on the side of the developer. I don't want to be in a place where, you know, we say more luxury housing is good for gentrification. You know, right. Is it like, like, like you just, you sort of end up in this place where it's so painful to take a position one way or the other that you just kind of go, I want to blow this whole thing up because I hate every second of it. Right. And, and, right. I, and I kind of understand that. Yeah. And I think when it comes to the developers, for example, like people will listen to this conversation and be like, these guys are pro developer. And I'll just put my cards on the table. Like in New York, for example, I was one of the leaders in taking out this group called the Independent Democratic Conference, who are a group of Democrats who caucus with Republicans. And they were essentially, I'll be careful with my words here, they were close with developers, I'll put it that way. Uh, and they were, developers were very upset to see that group of Democrats go. And a lot of the people I elected, and then including other people I helped elect uh, across the city, are bad on this issue. And I've been looking back on it and they're also bad on schools as I see it. Because I see the connection between these two things. And this is where I would want the DSA people well, to be better. Are they bad or are their voters bad? Both. That's kind of, yeah, yeah, right. They're both so, bad. And, yeah, yeah. And, 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 if, and if they're quote unquote bad, then that's, you know, like a churches and schools kind of, you know, But level. we can change. But that's where it is. It's like, I'm trying to examine it from my own perspective now. Because it's now that we've defeated these people because I'm one of those voters who was potentially bad at times. Is like, I'm trying to wrap my head around it now, which is I, we have this saying called uh, in, in lost debate, which is right for the wrong reasons sometimes, which is like sometimes mm -hmm. it's hard to say, for instance, the developers. Like I have no love for Stephen Ross and some of these other people in New York who dominate the real estate scheme. But that doesn't mean that if a developer sees a process that they think is needs to be streamlined, that they're necessarily wrong. Because as we described earlier, one of the moves that these people make in trying to slow down development or really to kill it is to add one layer of process after another that seems on the face of it reasonable, but when you put it all together, it means nothing gets built. And so if, if a big developer says, hey, I want less process, I think I'm at the point now where I'm willing to listen. You know, uh, Just because like the, the moves I'm seeing our politicians make aren't above board anymore on this kind of stuff. A lot of people, not to get too conspiratorial here, but a lot of people benefit from a really difficult process. And all of those people are incumbents in some way. A politician who's able to address things on a case-by-case -case basis, which, you know, of course, leads gives to- Gives them power. A, yeah. Gives them power and more, you know, campaign, more levers. That's politically profitable for them. Developers who already know the process and are from town or in town, 
or have been there and a long like a time. And there's like a phrase for this called regulatory capture, right? Which exactly. is like the more regulation, the more the incumbents benefit because it's exactly. expensive to keep up with it. Every time I meet a developer who's really successful in San Francisco, you know, because there are these developers who don't complain about anything. They're like, nah, it's fine with me. Yeah, they got great uh, lawyers and no, great No, they're all uh, locals. Lobbyists. They're like, oh yeah, I grew yeah. up next to that guy. You know what I mean? San Francisco is yeah. a pretty small <laughs> town. I'm, I happen to be from San Francisco, so we end up having these conversations about, oh yeah, you know that guy? I'm like, yeah, I went to high school with his kids and you know all that sort of thing so yeah so so I, anyway this comes up by the way i this is one observation i always have i think it's sort of funny uh it kind of relates more to what we were talking about at the beginning but when i find people who are like okay with development or sort of have the quote-unquote yimby mentality the thing i find about them is that they're people who are for lack of a better term just chill so there's a <laughs> there's a and i don't mean chill as in they aren't anxious or, or, or what I mean is, is that there's like an empty lot across the street from you. And somebody says, we want to propose something there. And there's a certain kind of person who's like, Oh my God. And, you know, and the only thing yeah. they can do is project the worst possible thing on that. What if they build this there? And what if like a serial killer lives there? And what, if, you know what I mean? Cause your mind, <laughs> your mind in a vacuum can play tricks on you. And we all go through this all the time. Right. And then there's another kind of person who's just like, eh, you know, I think it'll be okay. You know, like, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think it'd be fine. Like, you know, they just, they just, and it's not easy to politically pigeonhole the chill. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like, who is that person? And it's also not easy to politically pigeonhole the person whose mind is going to go berserk with negative possibilities once yeah. they hear that something that they don't know is coming. And you know what I find sort of ironic about all this? You go to a conference about the future or Epcot Center or walk into an office where you see one of those uh, little models of the city of the future and they got the little dinky, you know, monorail train. And even now, scientists and planners are shaping the lives of our children who will live in the 21st century. People love it. Everybody loves it. This is Robin Moses' gift. Yeah. Yeah. People love like. These visions of a, they love playing SimCity. They love these visions of a better future. But when you actually start trying to move towards that in the physical world, all hell breaks loose. And there's this kind of imaginative gap that where, and maybe that is because people like Robert Moses broke the trust, you know, that, I mean, and I will say one, one thing we should probably acknowledge here is that Robert Moses and people like him, we had one in the Bay Area in San Francisco named Justin Herman, but this sort of, redevelopment process that played out in the, you know, really in the sixties, he got started quite a bit earlier, but I mean, that's why the power broker is such a good book. He, you know, Robert Carroll talks about He's a pioneer. Yeah. Well, not only that, he literally was training all these people. People would fly out to see him and be like, how did you do that? You know, so his playbook is the American public works playbook. New York and the area around it was a very different place before Robert Moses arrived. It was Robert Moses who built the Throgs Neck Bridge and the Bronx Whitestone and the Verrazano and the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Those projects, and, and anybody can point to one in their city that are just horrible projects. I mean, Geary Boulevard in, in San Francisco basically became a freeway. And um, they, they, at one point, they wanted to build, I think, eight freeways over the city of San Francisco, including a couple over Golden Gate Park. Yeah, you know, where I'm sitting right now in New York City, for example, Moses was going to put a highway right through the middle of lower Manhattan. Exactly. You know, which is crazy. He gained a power unseen before, a power to build what he felt the city needed. He was afraid of no one. He battled the poor of the West Side and the rich of Long Island. And in the end, 
Robert Moses always won. So what I'm saying is, is that this whole sort of progressive regime to fight those types of projects, the origins of that is really the kind of freewayification, if you will, of America. And this is true in every city. Once again, it's true in every city. You know, in San Francisco, yeah. they had a fight over the Embarcadero Freeway in New York, it's lower Manhattan. And, and so I don't want to completely throw away the impulse for more process because the question is like, again, like I was saying before, how do you find that middle? I think the thing that would be most helpful now, this is going to sound, you know, you know, this and a nickel will get you a nickel. But like, is if we had a process that encoded some of those values that people say they want in their city, affordable housing, you know, um, that Integrated sort of thing. schools. Yes. Yeah. Well, if, yeah, I think, I think one you, leads to the other. Yeah, yeah. I think that if you had that type of process, suddenly you flip the script from, I'm not going to let you build this unless you do X, Y, or Z. And those goalposts just keep changing constantly to you can build whatever you want as long as it adheres to X, Y, and Z have at it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have yeah. a place where developers would presumably rise to the start occasion. solving. Yeah. For, I mean, let's put it in amoral terms. They would just start moving their profit around yeah. to sort of solve some of those things. Now, right now, how do they move their profit around? Right now, they solve for political influence. They yeah. solve for all sorts of other things that we think of as uh, perverting of the democratic process. But if you said, you know, look, we'll cut down on process. And, and there have been attempts to do this. Like, so in, in California, there is a law called SB 35. Basically, if it's built with union labor and some amount of uh, inclusionary zoning and a few other things, uh, you can basically sidestep the city process. It's a, like, like considerably more complicated than this, but like, that's how it plays out. We will make the process easier for you. Let me give an example. In my book, there's this long saga of this development in Lafayette, California, which is a very exclusive suburb on the other side of Oakland. This developer wanted to build 300 apartments on a plot that was zoned for exactly that. It was actually zoned for more. And in order to take advantage of a very little known state law that would allow them to, it would streamline their process or it gave them a legal threat against the city, they'd made some of the units below market rate. Now they weren't affordable exactly, but they were below market rate, right? So he basically volunteered to forego certain market rents on this building in exchange for more certainty around the process. And I think all the profit in that process, if you designed policy smart enough, could be channeled in another direction towards affordable housing, towards whatever. We don't think enough about kind of like creative ways to do those sorts of things and the ways in which uh, you really could start to create kind of cross subsidy or whatever you want to call it. Right. And um, what happened with that project for the instance, what happened with that, uh, oh, that development? Well, this was my excerpt in the New York times. So of course I want everybody to buy my book, but if you just want the cliff notes version, it is one of the most bizarre things you've ever seen. Ultimately, I mean, this gets even crazier, but, but what happened was the city basically went to him and was like, can you downscale this project? Right. Which is actually illegal, but they did it. He did downscale it to single family homes. People are around, well, it gets better. People around the 
city were so mad even about the single family homes because it was like 44 single family homes that they put on the ballot to stop the single family homes. Now this passed. Side note, your your state's government in general, oh, yeah. I just don't yes, get it. Exactly. Well, keep well, going, keep going. I don't want to sidetrack you. Anyway, so the developer turns around and reproposes the original 315 thing. So these people just didn't shoot themselves in the foot. They just put a gun in their mouth and pulled the trigger, right? So- Okay, to summarize, so he, so he, he, in response to pressure, put single-family homes. They put something on the ballot to stop the single-family homes. So then he he reproposes the the more dense development. Yes, and there's even okay. like twenty other things that happen in the middle that are involving an activist group called Barf. I mean, the 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 the, <laughs> the, 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 the thing which stands for the Bay Area Renters Federation. But the whole story is just bizarre, and it's full of these crazy characters. I have a feeling my friend Buffy Wicks was in the middle of this. Oh, Buffy! Buffy Wicks knows. Buffy Wicks is also my neighbor. So um, she's a she state is, representative for listeners. Yes, yeah, uh, she is my representative. She is a state assemblywoman from Oakland. Bottom line is, it ultimately happened that the because of all these new regulations the state has passed, it looks like it will happen. First proposed in 2011, the project has had multiple hearings, a court case, a failed redesign, and even a public vote. But a recent state law called the Housing Accountability Act, or HAA, makes it harder for cities to reject developments, especially ones that include affordable units, of which the terraces will offer 63. I guess one thing I would say that I think is, is really interesting in all this is that this project started in 2011, this proposal for apartments in, uh, in a very exclusive suburb. Now, in 2011, when they had their first meetings, literally nobody said anything nice about it other than the developer, right? So then 10 years pass, there's this saga, there's, I mean, I hate admitting to this, but there's publicity. That fight is over a 315 unit apartment complex. They call it Terraces of Lafayette. And then all these sort of YIMBY groups have popped up in the meantime. YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard, and they're these kind of progressive, but also largely privileged, educated folks who have kind of become this pro-housing movement. There's, of course, these people, there's one in New York called Open New York. So Yeah, they're very they, active in my neighborhood. Very yes, exactly. Oh, I did talk with them once. But yeah. um, these people really started to infect the conversation. They started showing up to meetings with this new group that's called Inclusive Lafayette that has popped up because of this project. And you go to these meetings now, the last meeting for this project I was telling you, and there was, I would say there was a sizable minority, still a minority of people who in the meeting were going, you know, I'm for this project. I want us to be an inclusive. There were high school kids who were like, you know, I'm learning all about social justice in my class and I want, right. And so there is like, there really was this constituency now of people who were saying, I want this. I think this is good. I want our community to go this direction. And even though the city council uh, did not want to vote for this, they ultimately did because they knew they'd get sued pretty badly if, if they didn't. At 12.30 this morning, after a seven-hour meeting, the planning commission reluctantly approved the terraces of Lafayette. You could tell they were, this representative democracy thing you were talking about is starting to work, right? Like, like there is now a vocal constituency that's like, no, I want this, right? And they have to, it's pretty powerful to show up. I mean, eventually they do have to kind of listen. If you're in a meeting yeah. and everybody says they hate the thing, uh, it's very easy for you to make a decision as an elected representative. But if you go to a meeting and 
everyone in the meeting is arguing and you have to kind of be the adult and come out of it and say, well, which direction is this community going to go? I just think that's a little, that makes it much, your job much harder. And, yeah. and I think that's ultimately good because uh, it, it just, it just sort of leads you to a place where you sort of have to start thinking about the greater good rather than the easy, well, these are the people who showed up. I'm just going to do this thing. Well, let's end on that note. That's a little bit of hope, uh, Connor. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am at Connor Doherty on Twitter. And the book is paperback. It's called Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream. But I think that uh, when you start to see real characters doing real things, it gives you a lot of empathy for the different sides. And I think it hopefully shows people why this is so hard and why you know, just kind of talking to your neighbors is probably the best thing you can do. You know, the the high level election stuff gets so acrimonious, but when you really just start to talk to your neighbors about, well, what do we want? What kind of group do we want to be? You know, uh, I think that can be pretty powerful. Well, Connor, thank you so much. This has been illuminating. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I'd once again like to thank Connor Doherty for an illuminating conversation. And you could find his book, Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis, and A Reckoning for the American Dream at your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy your books. Progressives is produced for The Lost Debate by Joe Engelbrecht and Mickey Ayub with research support and help from Joe Garvey. You could subscribe to Lost Debate and Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. And that's it for Regressives. I'm Ravi Gupta. Thank you for listening.